Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It is a curling podcast. Uh, with you as always, my name is Ryan McGee, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. And joining me, currently in Southampton, England, is Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, uh, have you have you recovered from, from, from the Mixed Doubles Championship there in England? Yeah. I, I Honestly, I gotta say, Mixed Doubles is easier on the body than uh 10 ends of traditional curling what's that speaking as a 43 year old who's been playing front end the last <laughs> few years well i mean it's 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 like half the sweeping even if you're doing a lot of the sweeping <laughs> and as, as lisa said when i asked her to play with me she said i hope you like sweeping because i'm not she admitted she skipped most of her life so she's not the strongest sweeper so uh and it's like far few it's a fast-paced game right it's like over in 90 minutes hour 45 so you're not out there on the ice for two and a half, three hours. So even a three game day, wasn't that much of a grind to be honest. Do you want to tell everyone how you did? Cause this, this event was not exactly, um, not exactly one of the higher profile events. In fact, I don't, I, there were no scores on curling zone. I basically had to rely on you to tell me how you were doing, uh, at the English mixed doubles championship. Do you want to tell everyone what the results were? Yeah, so uh, we, as you predicted, we finished second. So we did finish second. We lost the final eight to seven to the Fowlers. Uh, it was a really good game. It was back and forth. Uh, last four ends, the lead changed every end. Like they got a two, we got a three. No, no, sorry. And in five, we got a three. They came back with a two. We came back with a two to lead seven, six coming home. They got a two mm. uh, in the last end. So. Uh, there were no steals, I think, in the entire game. It was just back and forth. Uh, lots of great shots down the end. Uh, so, yeah, I, feel, I mean, we think, I think we feel really good. Like, like, the Fowlers are kind of full-time, fully funded from British Curling. On the circuit, Lisa and I uh, – Lisa had never played mixed doubles before <laughs> at all. And Lisa and I hadn't played together at all. So we went into that event. Uh, like basically our mantra all week was let's just go out and have fun, make some shots and see, see what happens. And, uh, you know, we definitely, I think learned a lot about it, the format as the week went on and, uh, you know, it sucks to lose a final. If you're one point from a world championship, that's always a bit painful, but we didn't really, uh, go in expecting anything. And I think that both made us very dangerous as a team because we had no pressure on ourselves to perform apart from the haggis bet, which we'll get to <laughs> in a second. <laughs> and, uh, you know, also meant that, you know, like we, you know, you're disappointed walk off the ice, but I think basically by the time we hit the Scottish border in the car, we were, we were both over it and kind of on to the next thing. So, you know, it's nice to, I think we're both pretty happy with how we performed and we had a lot of fun doing it. So it was a good week overall. I mean, that's pretty awesome. You went in there almost completely cold and, and you were one shot away from, from going to world championships. So that's, that's awesome, man. Uh, did you see, did you see that the last shot to beat you went, well, for, it, it went curling viral, <laughs> not exactly viral, but it went curling viral. 
Uh, well, I saw it. I mean, I saw the post on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a little bit of drama. I think that was oversold. In England. Basically, in fact, I, I wasn't mic. I guess the mic doesn't there, but I was like, we're not calling that. Like Anna, Anna slipped on sweeping the stone to the button. And then Ben was like, get out of the way, get out of the way, get out of the way. But it, it was so clearly made. Like from the hog line, we knew she had buttons. So there's no way either Lisa or I were going to pull that even if she had touched it. So That's easy to say yeah. now. <laughs> no, it, as it was actually, that's why I'm like, the, I'm sorry the sound's not there. Because actually, as she's falling down and wiping out, I'm like, we're not calling that. Because <laughs> like Ben was freaking out. So I'm like, I just wouldn't, I would not. And Lisa agreed, like, we would not want to go to a world championship on a burn stone, right? We're not, you know, that we, <laughs> we're not kind of invite, we're not going to Rachel Holman, the Fowlers. Let's put it that oh, way. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. All right. Uh, how, uh, how are the Fowlers going to do at worlds? I think, well, I mean, I think that they, they mean they've, they've made top eight before and that was before they were training you know, and they, they, they playing against because I play against them a lot. Like it's it's obvious they have kind of the pro slides, pro releases. That they've done a lot of work with British curling. They're technically very sharp. Um, you know, their strategy on point. They have a you know, like they're they're a well drilled team, and they're really drilled well for mixed doubles. So yeah, I think they're going there expecting to post results. And you know, I hope you know I'm always cheering for England internationally. So we wish them the best. And. Uh, I mean, the thing about mixed doubles is it is a totally bonkers game. Like, you know, in regular curling, anyone can beat anyone. There were a few times where, uh, well, in the semifinal, we won the semifinal on three ends, partly because our opponents, uh, one of our opponents was injured. But uh, we're playing Stu Brand, who listens to the podcast. And in the second end, he actually had a shot. We were set up well for two, but he he had a shot there for like a five-bagger, right? He missed it, but it was like... If he makes that, that's that was like an eight point swing on one shot there, and that's always the case in mixed doubles. That like there's always going to be some shot you can't take away just because there's so many stones in play, so many angles. So it's a less predictable format, I'd say, than traditional curling. So I think they're they're definitely kind of aiming for playoffs. I would wouldn't be surprised to make a deep run, but you know, once you get into the playoff stage and the knockout stage, it's it's kind of it could be all over the map. Like I could see them going to the medals. I could also see them just, you know, getting bounced if it's just, if it's just not their day on that day. So you opened the tournament by playing them and you beat them the first time around. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, well, our first game wasn't against them. It was against Andy Taylor and Jackie Taylor. So that was actually our first game. (laughs) And, uh, that was good. We won that game was a bit close, but I think that let us, uh, get a feel for the ice and kind of iron out some pretty basic things. And then, yeah, we played them the second game and won that one eight to three. Uh, that's the score line was not like, it was a, a lot closer than that. Like Anna did have a, she had a tricky run double on her last shot, but still had a shot to win it. So again, that's the kind of mixed doubles format. There's always going to be a shot there for a big end. But um, I think what we took away from that game was you just always have to go on the attack and mix doubles. There's no, no defense in that game. Like as soon as you try to get a little bit defensive, it, it, it can blow up in your face really quickly. So our approach was just to attack. Uh, we never even used the power play all week because frankly, we didn't understand the power play. So <laughs> <laughs> our deal was 
Uh, so basically what Lisa and I agreed was we'll use the power play in the eighth end if we have hammer and we were never, we never possessed hammer in the eighth end. So we never, we never used it and kind of using it more as a defensive option to keep the button open for the win. Uh, but yeah, you know, we, we had to learn how to defend against the power play. So we, we just opted to come around the corner guard and try and cut off that, that corner guard side. Sometimes it worked well. Sometimes, uh, it blew up on our faces, but, uh, yeah. So was this, was this your first big mixed doubles tournament that you played in? I've played in it twice before with the rink manager from Kent, who's, uh, She's a good curler, but she's not kind of like Lisa's level. And so having someone throwing first and last stone, who's kind of a good elite, you know, competitive curler, uh, really changes the dynamic. Like it, it, it opened up a lot of things for us that perhaps weren't there when I was playing before. So it, it was a, it was a different kind of experience playing with, you know, a, a player of Lisa's caliber. So that that kind of changed things a bit. So do we do we want to talk about the haggis bet? Well, we did beat the Fowlers. You said we had no chance, so but we also did finish second. So it did. I, I will say this. All right. So I will say this because I texted this to you after the game. The first thing Ben said to me uh, when he came into the locker room after the game is, "So are you going to make your friend from the podcast eat the haggis?" <laughs> and I said, "I don't know. What do you think?" And he said, "I think he should eat the haggis." <laughs> So that's Ben's vote. Okay, because you beat him in the because you beat the Fowlers in the first game. Because I thought the bet was if you beat the Fowlers and go to Worlds. Well, I, it's I I we, we could read it both ways. I will say that that the reason the bet started is because you said you had no chance against the Fowlers, and so we I clearly did. we clearly had a chance, right? You did. Um, so. In fact, when I when I texted you that we'd won the first game, you said I do not believe you. Is what you said. <laughs> I did not believe you. I thought you were. I thought you were lying. I thought you were just. I thought you were. Uh, yeah, I thought you were messing with me. No, I mean, I think that, here's the thing: with curling is a crazy game, and like anyone can beat anyone if you get to kind of a decent, decent standard. Um, you know, I've I've you know I've beaten well, I've beaten John Schuster, right? Like I, I don't think I'm anywhere near Schuster's capacity but you know I've, I've played a bunch of times with minnesota and one time i was on my game he was off a bit and i caught him and i think that's the case you know for any curl i think every curler knows that who's kind of curl competitively is anyone can beat anyone so i never step on the ice thinking i'm gonna lose i just go out there trying to do my best and see what happens so i i, I never felt like no chance like you thought we had no chance so I, yeah I, I i i thought there was no shot because you look at what they you look at what they've done. They're they were on form. They had just gotten back from Banff, where they had played and beaten the some of the best mixed doubles teams in the world. So, and then uh, and then and then they played you, and that's why curling is awesome. That is, tr- I, I have I have beaten in the same. One of the things I love about curling is when I was curling at St. Paul in the same week I beat. Allison Pottinger in a club game. And then two nights later, and Allison Pottinger was a world champ in the early 2000s with Debbie McCormick. And then two nights later went out and got absolutely thrashed by a bunch of newbies in like the Thursday league. <laughs> I remember thinking at the end of the week, I beat a world champ and I lost to a bunch of newbies in the same week. And that is curling. And that is why curling is awesome. 
whenever we do media events here to try and promote our learn to curls with the club, that's like one of my, one of my lines is, uh, is I've gotten my butt kicked by college students and 80 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely true. Yeah. All right. So am, am I going to have to eat haggis or what are we, what's, what's the decision here? Obviously Ben Fowler. We're going to have to put it to the people. I know what the people are going to say. The people aren't going to say. We have to create a Twitter poll and we're going to get you a haggis. <laughs> I have no idea where in Richmond I would even get a haggis. I'm sure I'm sure we can figure that part out. Maybe maybe a fan of the podcast will find the local haggis shop for you. Maybe they'll sponsor maybe the local haggis shop will sponsor the podcast. Oh gosh. <laughs> I don't think I don't think there is a Richmond haggis shop. All right, now I'm Googling it just to Now you're Googling haggis Richmond, Virginia. Um, I'm pretty sure Amazon will get you a haggis. I don't want to get food poisoning over this bet. You'll get food poisoning? It's like a sausage. From an Amazon haggis? I would get food poisoning from an Amazon haggis. They always have haggis in like tin cans for sale on like the airport shops up in Edinburgh and Glasgow. So you could definitely pick one up there and ship it to you. Step one is we have to have the people vote if you eat a haggis or not. And then I have a good feeling. I think that, we all know what that vote's going to end up as. But I'm a man of the people, Ryan. So <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be awful. All right. Can we talk about something else? Sure. Other than me having to eat haggis. Sure. What, what else do you want to talk about? What else is there besides the English mixed doubles? Does anything else happen in the curling world? Besides, oh, one more thing. All right, one more note. All right, so for an unmixed doubles or haggis? Unmixed doubles. Just to, just to set the scene for how weird it was, it was basically us playing on sheet F, which is like the far sheet, like in the middle, a completely empty rink. And then on sheet B, Anna Sloan, of all people, shows up to lead a level one coaching clinic. <laughs> and there was literally nobody else in the building. There was the coaches for the Fowlers, John Brown, who's the umpire running the competition, and then there's Anna Sloan. I thought, you know, I thought maybe Anna Sloan was going to come watch me. But... <laughs> <laughs> there she is, leading <laughs> coaching course. I was like, all right. So yeah, that was my that was my brush with curling fame. You guys, so. you guys must have gone over time. Like it was, she had the ice. It's like it's kind of like our it's like our Thursday league, Jonathan. You got to get off the ice and give it to the hockey players by a certain time, or else they get they get ticked at you. They get angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While you were doing that, um, more good results for for England. I think we talked last episode about how this has been like the year of English curling that you guys have gotten all these great results. Um, and the men's team that went to that world qualification event did not disappoint either. Um, we kind and they kind of did exactly what you said they needed to do: have a good week, get to the playoffs, and then hopefully have a good game against either the Netherlands or Korea. Uh, however, the Netherlands and Korea are the two men's teams that are heading to Worlds after they qualified out of New Zealand. Uh, England managed to make it into the 1-2 game, um, but unfortunately lost to Korea and then lost to Netherlands. But, I mean, they can't really hang their heads. They had a heck of a week. They started out 5-0. and Um Things got a little dicey for them those last two games, but probably one of, probably the most clutch thing that they did 
was right before the last draw, um, two of their one, uh, Andy Reed, the skip, and I think their third both almost drew to the pin and that sent them from fourth to first in the DSC. So that's how they got into that one versus two game. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's tough. We actually had to, well, so I went out thinking on, it's tough to do that. I just know the pressure of that, right? Where DSC is becoming increasingly important. I'm not, I'm not convinced it should be, but it's being used to eliminate teams in kind of WCF events. So increasingly, being able to draw posted good DSC score across the tournament, but also in the last draw becomes kind of crucial. So that, that was a pretty clutch performance by them. Yep. So even though they lost their last game of the round Robin by going from fourth to first in DSC, they wound up in that one versus two game where they lost to Korea. And then uh, the Netherlands who England actually opened the tournament by beating. Um, unfortunately they fell to, Yap Van Dorp, so he will be heading back to the Worlds, and you know they were kind of. <laughs> you look at the line scores because this uh, not uh, they didn't they didn't webcast any of it until the very end until those playoff games. So you're basically watching line scores, and they were chaos. They were the chaos team uh, at the beginning. They won one game, twelve to eleven. Uh, they had one game where. They basically had to get, get get a three bagger and then steal to win. Um, they won one game after being down big. Uh, you know they were they were team chaos there at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the part of the effect of the five rock free guard zone too, right? That that gives a lot more chances for kind of wild score swings, and I think especially like not quite the slam level, but the next level down, um, that extra guard can, can create some kind of interesting results. So, uh, again, it's a good incentive to stay aggressive if you're well at any level, but especially if you're kind of like club or competitive level with that five rock free guard zone, you're, you're never out of it now. On the women's side, China and Finland are heading to Worlds, so not really any surprises among the teams that qualified out of this inaugural World Qualification event that they've got set up. The teams that we kind of felt were the strongest wound up at the end of the week being the teams that qualified to go to their respective World Championships. One surprise on the women's side was Brazil going three and four in the round robin. Pretty that's a pretty good result for a up and coming or a growing developing curling nation. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't know the story there at all. I'm like wondering, are there Canadians like on that team kind of curling in Canada or is it kind of Brazil Brazilians kind of, do they even have a facility in Brazil or not? I have no idea. I'm pretty sure the skip is from Vancouver curling club. Okay, so yeah, it's a good result, but then they also have the resources there, right, to to train and kind of pick up their level. So, but still, it's you don't really associate Brazil with curling, and they've been they've been trying to qualify for worlds through the the Ameri- the America Challenge series that they have to play against. That they they usually challenge. Uh, usually, it's the U.S. and so far they have not. So far, they have not been able to, to knock off the U.S. or Canada to qualify for a Worlds out of out of the America's zone. But you know, three and four, and you know, a couple 
couple other games go their way, they may have been in the in the playoffs at the down in down in New Zealand. Yeah, no, and I think it's good. Like, uh, it's good to see these non-traditional curling countries come up and post results. Um, I, I always want to see like actual curling facilities go in and uh, the game actually grow in those countries, not just at the international level, but you know, place for people to play and hopefully kind of get uh, curlers from Brazil kind of playing. But it's still a good result to Brazil, and so hopefully that can be kind of parlayed into into something bigger, more long-term. We saw a bunch of teams decline a trip to New Zealand to play in this event. So we've got the first one, um, first one out of the way. Is this event a good idea? No, really? <laughs> it's not a good idea. I mean, I personally, I think, well, we're, we're locked into this for the quad because the yeah. rules are there. There was a lot of shenanigans. There's, there's been a lot of grumbling. So A, a lot of teams dropped out. B, the rules were poorly written. So some teams defaulted and didn't play in the America's Challenge and went right to um, the World Qualification event. Same thing Same thing in the Pacific Zone. You had, um, I think it was the New Zealand women did not go to PACC, but because they were a host, they went to, they got to play in this event. Um, on home ice. And so for some European teams, that really is upsetting because any every European team just to kind of get that qualification spot had to go and spend the 10 days to two weeks in Tallinn. And then that's expensive. And then turn around and kind of book time off work and spend money for another trip other side of the world, right? So um, my view is what they should do is just figure out a way to have, um, well, maybe it just involves expanding the, the world championship by a little bit, but figure out a way to have X number of teams from each zone. And if it's a question of rebalancing from zones, maybe what they do is go to kind of a format similar to the Briar or Scotties now where you have, you know, a championship pool, like two pools of eight. So you got more countries in it, championship pool for the top. And then a seeding pool and whichever zones do poorly in the seeding pool, maybe they lose one or two spots for next year. And then it's kind of always up for grabs. That's something like that, where really it's each zone qualifies X number of teams. And that's done internally within the zone because to add another competition to a lot of these developing countries, really, once you drop out of the top 10 to 15 countries in curling, it's all self-funded and to ask self-funded teams to a, take another week to two weeks off work and then B, pay a plane ticket, especially the other side of the world for a lot of these teams. And then C, uh, have to pay the cost of entering that. That's just going to kill the game, right? And, and I get the Pacific, I get the argument from New Zealand and Australia. They always have to travel. And my answer to that is really the qualification route should be through the Pacific you know, association. If it just means they qualify four instead of three, so be it or whatever it is, right? The same for Europe and the same for the Americas. I think kind of adding a, another tournament and having a lot of these developing associations pay the cost doesn't really grow curling, especially if you see so many people turning down that tournament, it shows you the funding just isn't there. But this was an easy tournament to, to turn down because this year's Worlds does not does not get you points for the Olympics. And if you're a team that, you know, let's say, for instance, the Czech Republic team, uh, the women's Czech Republic team that 
did not qualify for worlds out of Europeans. So they had the opportunity to go to this event. They chose not to. They are, they going to worlds doesn't get them points for the Olympics. And because they played in worlds last year, they already have a spot in the Olympic qualification event uh, already locked up. So for them, it was probably an easy no, right? Yeah, it was an easy no for a lot of countries, but what I think flip it around and tell me an Olympic sport where countries decline an opportunity to play in a world championship in that sport, right? I think I guarantee you curling's the outlier. And so then the WCF has to ask itself, why are countries turning down a chance to play in a world championship? That tells you that something's fundamentally wrong with the format. So the an- the answer is just to expand worlds again in bring even more countries into the, into the fold at the, at the world level? Well, I mean, you don't have to expand it. You could just, you could stay at 12 and then just say, this is how many we have for each zone. And if the complaint is about the, and the complaint was that Europe was getting too many teams compared to other countries based on order of merit, international performance. Right. And that's just because historically Europe's been stronger than the Pacific region. Pacific region is rising. That's fine. But the solution is either A, expand the worlds to more teams. There's no magic number of 10 or 12 or 13, right? Just There's nothing wrong with doing 16. They've got the, the space and the ice. Uh, so either A, expand to 16, or B, figure out a way whereby at the end of the week, the bottom performing countries have some kind of relegation system where they're playing off for one or two extra slots each year. So if the question is, should Europe get six spots or seven spots should the Pacific get two or three that really have those two regions battle it out during the playoff round, kind of the lowest seeding teams playing off for the final spot for next year. That's a way cheaper way to do it, a way simpler way to do it. And then you just kind of assign the zone slots based off performance of that year's worlds. And then you don't have to add an extra tournament into the mix. So right now they're at 13. Should they just go to 14 and just give the Pacific Asia region uh, that that fourth slot? So if I was in charge of World Curling Federation, I would go to 16 teams and I would do the pool play they do at the Briar and Scotties now. The only difference I do is if you're one of the four teams that qualify from each pool, I'd then just make it a straight double knockout. So basically like how Manitoba runs its, its provincials. Straight double knockout, A side, B side qualifier for the finals. And you can do that really quickly without adding, without adding, in fact, you'd probably save a couple of draws on the event, but that would make it, I think, a more compelling event. I don't, you know, and then the eight teams that don't qualify, you run that as a seeding pool to determine how many slots each zone gets next year. I didn't, I just think the pro, so my, watching the, this is more, maybe we can talk about it more when the Briar and Scotties come on. My complaint about the championship pool is those, the, the games in the championship pool round actually aren't all that interesting. Whereas if you qualified out of each pool, then you're in some kind of knockout tournament that makes it a lot more interesting and compelling event. Cause I, I think once you get to the playoff stage, it's basically winner go home, right? So double knockout solves that by kind of giving a little bit of wiggle room, but you're in, then into an elimination tournament. And I think that was the complaint last year when they went to the new uh, single elimination 16 playoff was there's no, you know, there's no reward for finishing first in the round robin. You can go, you can go 12 and 0 against everyone else, but then be done in one game. 
Yeah, but then you, you just seed it, right? So then you if you're the first team in your pool, you're crossing over playing the fourth team in the other pool and you still got two kicks at the can, right? And so if I'm I don't know who that would have been, but let's say I'm I'm Brad Gushu. I know I'm A playing Yap Van Dorp, assume they were around eighth spot last year. So in theory, that's kind of a pretty favorable matchup for Gushu. And then B, even if I lose that, I get a second kick at the can against a losing team, right? So I still got a path forward, but I get hammer against the lowest seeded team in the other pool. That gives you a good advantage, right? Whereas the 16 playoffs, pretty, pretty wild, right? While you're at mixed doubles, you also missed the Continental Cup. So you didn't miss a whole heck of a lot. Team World wins for the first time since, I believe, 2012. Really, the only interesting thing to me the whole weekend was one of the very first draws. They made. They were making Kevin Cooey play doubles, uh, and he tweaked his knee while playing. So really, it literally is all fun and games until someone gets hurt, right? I mean, yeah, that's always the risk in any kind of format. I think... Well, I didn't see it. So I, I, how badly hurt is he? Is he going to miss games or is it just a little tweak? No, he's not going to miss any games. I don't, at least I don't, I assume not. I mean, I think like one of the people follows us on Twitter, Megan Edwards kind of has hinted. She thought that Cooey might be injured this year. I don't know. She apparently, she's like a big Cooey fan. So maybe she, <laughs> maybe there's something bigger going on that we don't know about, but. The Game of Stones podcast guys mentioned this, that it seemed like it happened because he was having, he wasn't, he wasn't able to slide at the beginning with his normal broom. He was having to, to slide with a broom that he could jump up and sweep with. So that may have been, that may, he was basically having to alter his delivery. So that may be why that happened. Was it the, the delivery or was it the jumping up and sweeping? It could have been either. Like I didn't. I didn't see one moment where it looked where you could look at it and say, okay, that's definitely where he tweaked his knee. Yeah. I hope it's not that bad. It would suck if you got injured at <laughs> the Continental Cup. Yeah. He played the, he played the rest of the weekend, but yeah, it's, it, yeah, to get into, if he, if he did something to his knee, that's going to affect him at basically an all-star event. You never want to see that. There was a, there was a running back for the Patriots named Robert Edwards, who was playing in the pro bowl, uh, in, tore his ACL during a beach beach football game the day before the Pro Bowl and was never the same again. And that that was also the last time they ever played the beach football game at the Pro Bowl. So yeah, all-star event, you don't want to see that affect someone's season, especially at this point in the season. Yeah, I mean that's that's true. I would say uh you're like I don't know, you're you're not very likely to injure yourself, Curly, is what I would say. It's not like football where there's kind of like the harsh cutting and and all and the the kind of high impact stuff, right? Well, no. Um but also you're taking a guy who skips and really probably has very little interest in playing mixed doubles and you're making him play mixed doubles. Like why, what, what is the point of, of doing that? Cause I think they made everyone, I think they made everyone play doubles that was in this event and it, it doesn't make any sense to me. So this is outside of the Olympics. This is probably the biggest showcase event for mixed doubles. Um, definitely more so I'd say definitely more so than the curling world cup because this event, actually gets televised by TSN and VIX there. So this is your this is your showcase event up until the Olympics for mixed doubles. So why aren't you getting the best mixed doubles players and the best mixed doubles teams at this event? 
Um, you know, it's not that hard to add two mixed up, just two double specialists uh, to these teams, right? Yeah, I, I guess, A, I don't think everyone has to play mixed doubles. The Cooey Holman combination for mixed doubles made like zero sense to me. Like, uh, <laughs> just, you know, like what's, what's going on with that? Uh, whoever was putting that combo together. Yeah, so I, I don't, I'm not sold on making like a thousand events of mixed doubles. It kind of looked like they did a lot of mixed doubles, but it was all kind of at the beginning when probably viewership was low. Is that correct? Or Yeah, it was during the day. So like I was, I was at work, so I didn't see a whole heck of a lot of the mixed doubles because they did them on, they did them Thursday afternoon and Friday afternoon. So most of, most of the curling viewing public was probably at work while they were playing the mixed doubles. So that's kind of, it was kind of out of sight, out of mind, mostly. So that's why, I mean, I think my only complaint about this event, because I think the format was great this year. I loved the, the, the scramble concept. I think the only thing that they need to do is figure out a way to make the mixed doubles more interesting instead of just like, I don't know, in, instead of making people that really shouldn't be playing mixed doubles making the and making them play it you know showcase showcase the best that mixed doubles has to offer since more and more people are starting to specialize in it yeah i mean i think who is fine at mixed i i don't think and this is what the point lisa made to me it was who are playing the mixed doubles right it's like it's not i think the the argument about mixed double specialists is a bit overstated there's a few nuances to the game but really it's it's a shot making game right and, and Sinkui is capable of making all the shots in a mixed doubles game for sure uh i think to me the issue is like him and home and neither of them are, are particularly great sweepers they're you know they've been skips basically all their lives so um you probably want to pair each of them with like a third or a second right and, and kind of create a more natural mixed doubles partnership uh, that's, that's probably the, the tweak I'd make there. But I, again, I don't think you need to have everybody in that event playing mixed doubles and, and they, they've dropped the the hot shots, haven't they? Yeah, they have, which is good. I honestly thought it was, I honestly thought that that, what they called singles, I honestly thought it was boring. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, well, it's not, I, I think that they've got to figure out some way to make the singles format more interesting or do something with it or, or just maybe just do mixed doubles, do a mixed, do a skip. I don't think they need to do like a thousand mixed doubles, right? Just do a couple of draws of mixed doubles. Yeah. So it, it is a bit, it is a bit, they are trying to push mixed doubles on the viewing public and I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. Yeah, the way the way to do it, I think, is to get teams like Pere and Rios, get Johnny Moe there. Um, you know, the best mixed doubles players weren't there. Yeah, I think that, that so one option is get mixed doubles teams in there to have them play. Uh, I'd cut it down a bit. And yeah, just I think, like you said, maybe just not have everyone play mixed doubles. But yeah, and it's it's a four day long all star event, which I mean that's a bit much, right? Four days. What, Vegas is a three day city, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, a just watching some of the videos that posted on <laughs> on YouTube and Instagram. Well, maybe four days is great for the players because it, yeah. it was clear to me they all had sunburns. Most of them looked a bit dazed in their 
their post-game interviews, it was pretty clear <laughs> this was not a serious event and they were there to enjoy Vegas. And I think they honestly couldn't care that much about the curling, right? So, A, that's the problem number one. I don't th- – yeah, I don't think as a four-day event it's all that compelling, right? So. Yep. Yep. Pare it down and get Paray and Rios there. And I think you've got – and I think you've got – a really good event that that would be fun that you know it's fun to watch but four days of an all-star format i don't know it gets it gets a little laborious yeah yeah definitely i think a little bit of cutting down would be good i think yeah yeah exactly what you said so just play mixed doubles a bit then some men's and women's some mixed and some and some skins yep Hard to believe that we are making an argument for less curling on TV, but I think we just did. Um, speaking <laughs> speaking of mixed doubles and curling on TV, we have the third leg of the Curling World Cup is coming up this weekend. So they did a great job of scheduling this for Super Bowl weekend, Jonathan. Great job. Uh, great job with that scheduling. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I I think well I, does anyone in the WCF know what the Super Bowl is? Probably not. <laughs> That's point number one. The WCF is based in Perth, so they don't know what American <laughs> football is. I mean, yeah, I I don't know. Again, it comes back to what do they want to do with this event, and where do they want to grow the audience and the coverage? Right? Because I, I still it still just doesn't feel like it's it's not a slam, and it's not. In international competition it's kind of stuck somewhere in the middle so i think to me that's the bigger problem but and this this field that is heading to Jankoping, sweden i in my opinion it's the lesser of the three fields that we've seen so far yeah uh, you do have the hometown uh the hometown heroes at dean and hasselberg will be playing uh there on home ice where and i believe that they both just recently won the swedish championship at this same curling club uh so it's this event will also be a little bit unique than the first two legs that were in uh china and omaha this one's going to be played in a curling club basically they're in in Yonkaping, and it looks like they're going to set up five sheets of ice and then cover a couple of the sheets, a couple of the club sheets with uh, temporary bleachers. So it'll be interesting to see what the attendance looks like for this. Cause attendance was kind of abysmal at the first two. It was not, you know, we talked about that ad nauseum right after the, right after the event in Omaha, but it's not, it was not limited to Omaha. The event, the, the, the first one in, in China also didn't draw a whole lot of people it looked like. So this will not be a big arena that they're trying to fill. They're going to just be trying to fill up a curling club. So even if they don't have thousands of people in attendance, it's still, it'll still look pretty full. So that'll be good. Um, as I said, Adin and Hasselberg are going to be there. And to be honest, I'd be surprised if either of them lost. Uh, this is, this field isn't, as great as it looked at the beginning, we discussed this as well. The all-star, the TSN curling skins also popped up this weekend, which took away Brad Gushu and Jennifer Jones, who were originally, originally announced as team Canada for this event back in September, which made some sense because 
those two teams are going to be Team Canada at the Briar and Scotties, so they don't have provincial playdowns to to go to. So this would have been a nice little tune up for them before playing at the Briar and Scotties, but they they will now be in Banff for the curling skins game, and that will that means that Matt Dunstone and Darcy Robertson are heading to represent Canada at the Curling World Cup in Sweden. Solid teams, but not the not the top line names that were originally going to be there. No, and then also I think so. This starts what? This starts Wednesday. I believe so. Yes, and we're we're recording on a Sunday, and Darcy Robertson's team was just bounced from like the semifinal of the Manitoba Provincials. So there, boy, <laughs> that's going to be a tough turnaround, right? You're coming off losing a. Scotty's birth, then got to get on a plane, travel to Europe, deal with jet lag, and go play. So it's not an ideal setup for them. I don't, I'm not sure what Dunstone's done uh, in the lead up to this. So maybe maybe they've gotten here a little bit earlier and a bit more time to adjust. But you know, jet lag's not trivial when you're you know uh, trying to play in a tournament like this. Um, so you never know. Plus, so getting over the loss plus the jet lag is going to kind of I think have a a negative impact on the Robertson team. I could see Dunstone going and doing some damage. I think like Dunstone can definitely match a Dean's shot for shot. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't count them out, but it's, you know, one of the, you know, kind of, I think the first international appearance for this version of the Dunstone team. So that could also be a bit of a factor. If you count that tournament in China that they recently went to, because I think, I think that was one of those events where they bring in teams from all around the world and called them, you know, Team USA, Team Canada, whatever. So that, I mean, if you count that, then this would be, I guess, their second turn as Team Canada this season. Um, So if you're in the U.S. and you're kind of new to curling and you're unfamiliar with the name Matt Dunstone, uh, he's a curler out of, uh, I believe they're curling out of Saskatchewan now. He's originally from Manitoba where he won a couple of junior championships there in Canada uh, and represented them at World Juniors a couple times. Now he's playing out of Saskatchewan. They've got a pretty solid team, and he's, you know, he's known for upweight shots. He can definitely move some granite around. Um, but he's an, they're, they're an exciting team to watch. If you get a chance to, to see them, uh, definitely do so. This event, yeah, a lot of the games are going to be live on Olympic Channel, and there's going to be a few that are taped late on NBC Sports Network. Uh, there'll also be games available on the WCF YouTube channel. It does not look like TSN is going to have any of this streaming. They, For the second leg in Omaha, they relegated it to internet only on tsn.ca. Um but I don't. I think if you're a Canadian wanting to watch this event, I think you're going to have to head over to YouTube, which it's fine. It's these days it's pretty easy to watch an event on YouTube and throw that onto your television through Chromecast or any other number of ways. So even though an event is relegated to streaming, that you know it's still it's still pretty easy to watch it uh, in a traditional way. Representing Team USA will be two younger teams. Uh, Mark Finner's team, which includes Corey Dropkin playing fourth, and then Corey Christensen's team representing the U.S. on the women's side. These are younger teams. Um, 
most of the most of the members of these teams are just out of jun- juniors. Uh, they did pair Vicky Persinger with Corey Christensen on that team. Vicky's more of a veteran, and that team I think has really benefited from benefited from having her. They've gotten a lot better this year. Uh, so two teams that are up and coming. The Mark Finner team. I think they've made. They've made something like five event finals and lost all of them this year, but they they do they do put wins on the board. Yeah, I mean they're definitely like, and this makes sense, right? Like in a certain sense, mm-hmm. for uh, the different member associations, using events like this as a way to develop your kind of up and coming younger squads is is a good idea, right? So. Mm-hmm. Maybe what's interesting is Canada's, I think, is just going down the CTRS, but countries like the USA and, and Scotland are putting in teams that are perhaps kind of their second or third team in kind of their national program depth chart. And there's there's wisdom in that, right? It's a good chance to give some of the younger up and coming players international experience, good chance to let them play in a, a WCF event like this. So maybe that's what a lot of the big associations are going to start using this event for as a developmental event, as opposed to one of the highlight events. And then Scotland, they are sending Ross Patterson fresh off a grand slam of curling victory and Sophie Jackson. I believe that what that team's also very recently out of juniors, right? Yeah, they're just out of juniors. They're, they're basically the women's B team after Eve Muirhead. Uh, and they're really hot and cold this year. Like they're either, they either kind of post really good results at tournaments or not so well. They've been pretty streaky this year. I, I'd say actually Patterson has been too. At the Slam's a good performance uh, and they've kind of climbed up the rankings. But probably when the, the selections were made at the start of the year, uh, I, I can't speak for British curling, but my hunch is they were probably third on the depth chart just given the experience of that team. So uh, probably the thinking was use this event as a developmental one for British curling teams. And so, uh, again, it's a kind of a good chance for both of them to get some more international experience. Uh, looking at mixed doubles, that's where you – this is – mixed doubles is actually where you start to see some names in this event. Uh, the Hamiltons are going for the U.S., uh, surprisingly, Tomas Ulsrud is going to give mixed doubles a go, and he's going to pair with uh, Kristen Skaslian and represent Norway. Norway won the Omaha uh, leg, so they've already got a spot clinched in the grand final in Beijing. And Pere and Rios from Switzerland are back in the the third of three legs, trying to trying to win a leg and get that guaranteed spot. Although with based on points, I think they're good. I think they're going to be in. Um, I don't know anything, any other interesting things stand out to you about this event? Well, I'll be curious. They they live stream one of Olsford's games. I I think Olsford will actually do well uh, in this format. He's such a great touch player and uh, mixed doubles is all about that draw to the button. So you know, maybe it's a little bit too late in his career to become a mixed doubles specialist, but just out of curiosity, I like to see how how Thomas handles the mixed doubles format. You'll be able to see him right off the bat. Uh, the first game that's going to be televised uh, will be the Hamiltons going up against Tomas Ulsrud and Skaslian from Norway. Uh, that's going to be live on Olympic channel. That is going to be at, hang on, I'm having to do math here. That's going to be on at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday. So that'll be, what, 1.30 your time? 
Yeah, so that's pretty good. I'm teaching that, unfortunately. <laughs> I'll, I'll just show it in class. I'll be like, today we're looking at curling. That's what I think you should do. <laughs> what class? What class is it? It's actually it's actually not a, it's what's called a visit day. So uh, it's actually high school and college students. Like college is like between high school and university here coming in and uh, tasting out the university. So I've got to kind of give sample lectures. Oh no! <laughs> so to, to prospective students, it's kind of a recruitment event. So yeah, I think that that might not go well with the powers that be if I if I did that. <laughs> Well, check it out. Yeah, check it out after you're done with that. And when you're looking at game times for for this event and trying to figure out when it's on in the U.S., remember whatever time you see, uh, Sweden is six hours ahead of of Eastern time. So use that to help with your math when you're trying to figure out when these games are going to be on. Yeah, for sure. We kind of talked about attendance a little bit. What do you? How do you think it's going to be? at, at this event there in Sweden. It doesn't look like the WCF is doing a whole lot of in-market uh, marketing <laughs> to try and get people in the door for these events. Yeah, I wish, I mean, I don't think it'll be that great, to be honest. I think, I wish the WCF would paper the house, basically. <laughs> it's yes. like, I, I, I kind of feel like that's more of a North American thing, but uh, just figuring out ways to get people on the stands. Like even the Briar and Scotties, you'll see them sometimes just give away a, a whole stack load of free tickets to, to schools so kids can come watch and kind of figure out an activity to kind of show them what curling is. And I don't see a lot of that going on in European curling events. And that's kind of a pretty basic kind of marketing trick. Uh, so, yeah, I don't expect great attendance. And uh, I'm not sure what the viewing numbers will be. They kind of have trouble with attendance for curling period in Europe, right? I mean, yeah, even the even the Euros has got terrible attendance, right? So I can't see how an event with no history and not really a clear identity is going to get a lot of people in the stands. I mean, going back to Worlds in the 80s and 90s, that book, uh, Burned by the Rock, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of belly aching in that book from top curlers who talked about they didn't really like going to worlds when it was in Europe because there was never anyone in the stands. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's often a complaint, right? The Canadian team. Well, I mean, to be honest, Canadian teams don't necessarily travel all that well. Uh, they prefer it when the worlds are on Canadian soil. I, I think there's a bunch of factors for that. I think a lot of, a lot of current has done a lot over the years to kind of address some of that, but yeah, I think the lack of fans in the stands is, is a longstanding problem in European curling. I don't think attendance for events is necessarily a a key performance indicator for curling, um, really, unless you're the Briar and the Scotties and you're Curling Canada relying on gate receipts to kind of help fund everything. Um, But it's definitely probably the most visible indicator of whether or not an event is making traction. Um, So the way they set this up, they set up two legs in China, including the grand final. They set up a leg in the U.S. and they set up a leg in Europe kind of to try and help grow the sport. Will this actually help grow the game in Europe? I don't think so. I, I just, there's, there's basically no buzz. Well, there's no, there's not even any buzz amongst curling friends and like literally nobody else talks to me about it. I get a, I, I do get friends from, from the office who like when the euros is on TV here, 
will tell me, oh, they watched a bit of the Euros last night. So that actually, that actually does get traction. But this event, I think, means nothing. Uh, and that that's kind of the big problem with it is there's not there's not an identity for it. It's not really clear what people are are playing for. So they're still kind of educating everyone on this event because it is brand new. A, it's brand new, but B, I just I I still find the format completely like lacking an in interest. Right? It's it's a bit. It, it they've really got to figure out a better way to make it um, engaging. And I think really rather than trying to be international slams or light versions of slams they've got to figure out a way to make it more of a team concept where it's clear you're cheering for your country and maybe tr- maybe figure out a way like we said before to make it how the results for all the all the teams from that one country kind of add up to something so it's a bit more of a compelling format yeah and the only the only way to do that is to make sure that all the countries have all three teams there which isn't the case right now i think there's only what Four of four countries have teams in all three. I think. I think it's the U.S., Canada, Scotland, and China. I think. Yeah, and I think that. Yeah, and I think we said this before. I, I kind of like your idea that you said before. Make it like how how team tennis is in in college uh, in the U.S. Right, where it's some common. We're basically men's, women's, and mixed doubles all together determine who advances, and basically figure out a way to make it perhaps I think a Davis cup type event where it's, it's kind of the, each of the individual performances head to head add up to that country advancing through some kind of tournament. And so you've got to, you maybe you vary the countries from event to event, but you, you, you kind of get more countries involved and perhaps make it a bit more of an interesting knockout format as opposed to this. So if this event isn't getting much traction in Europe and isn't really, at least now, at least now in your one, isn't really doing much to help grow the game in Europe. Like what do, what can they do to help grow the game there? I mean, I, so it's, I guess my grumble with European competitive curling is there's no ecosystem for lack of a better term, right? If you're in Canada, especially in some of the curling rich provinces like Ontario or Alberta or Manitoba, there's a pretty clear hierarchy of tournaments Right, so you, you've got your Ontario Curling Tour, which is kind of for like the competitive players. You've got your more social bond spiels, which are kind of for the more club players, and then you've got your elite WCT Slam events for kind of the top twenty, right? And so, part of the problem here is, especially the kind of high end countries, they're spending a lot of money to make sure that their teams play all the time in Canada, and so that's pulling a lot of competitive teams out of the competitive circuit here, and then. The tournaments here are kind of just not, there's not really a clearly built up tier one, tier two system. And there's, there's a little bit of low hanging fruit. So like there, there is a little competitive circuit here called the Scottish Curling Tour, which attracts kind of most of the competitive teams from Britain, occasionally gets uh, teams from the continent. But it's not even signed up to like curling zone in the order of merit system, right? So to me, like there's there's a lot of low hanging fruit where there are some competitive cash spiels where if they just kind of reached out to the WCT and the curling zone and um, basically signed up there, you could get some order of merit points. So some of the lower tier teams could go out playing a little weekend bond spiel, even if the multiplier is like one point three or something kind of absurdly low, right? So you're not getting many points, just getting a few points, seeing where you stand on the world stage would be good. And then I think really. What needs to happen after that is then 
a clearer defining of what I call the tier one events. Those are the events where Canadian teams come over. And so the strength of field is pretty strong. And then the tier two events, which are kind of more for the, the national teams, the teams that play out in the Euro B pool, some of the kind of teams that may not be punching through in the Scandinavian countries, but, but those kinds of teams where they can feel they can build up their, their track record. And so the, it, there just isn't, much coordination going on here between countries it's it's pretty disorganized until until that pyramid gets filled in um you're not really going to see the competitive side of the game in europe take off some of the big name teams will go to those events in china and japan because they're i mean there's a monetary reason to go there's a few of those tournaments have pretty hefty purses and then a lot of times they get their travel over there paid for by the event basically to just try and you know bring some attention to the event based on conversations with you i don't see europe doing anything like that to try and get canadian teams over to tournaments in europe right it sort of it varies i i don't know the exact deals that uh, go on like i i know in scotland the two ones that attract the big Canadian teams are uh, the Aberdeen International. That's Tom Brewster puts that on. You, you occasionally get like a Mike McEwen or a Kui showing up for that. And the Perth Masters, which is which normally gets a couple of top flight Canadian teams. And I'm not sure if part of that is their entry fees paid or their expenses are paid or if it's just tradition that Canadian teams come over. So there are certainly events that are like that. And actually last year was pretty interesting that um, – sorry, the, the year before last, when it was the last kind of run up for the qualifying for the Roar of the Rings process, is that you actually had a fair number of Canadian teams rushing over to Europe in kind of February, March to try and pick up order of merit points because they were kind of, as the clock was running down on the on the, the race for CTRS points. So there are times where Canadians come over. I think the bigger thing is that, and that's fine if they do, but the bigger problem is there's not much being done to fill in that gap, right? So countries like Britain, so I'll just pick on British curling not because I think they're doing anything wrong, but this is an example, right? Is that they're funding three teams in men's, in women's, in mixed doubles. That's great. There's very little going on below those three teams, right? And so especially on the women's side, it's kind of really striking that there really aren't many competitive women's teams even playing the local Scottish circuit. Because basically, they're like, if I'm not picked by Team GB, then what's the point in me playing? And so a lot of people kind of wander off and do something else. But the problem is, then where are you getting your next kind of batch of curlers from, right? So there's not really much being done at that tier. And so and that's just not in British curling. That's kind of across the board in Europe that, you know, my, my joke is when I'm playing in bond spiels, I'm either playing against people who you see on TV or people who slide on their knees. There's no kind of what I call good competitive, like kind of what I call club competitive, like my tier, like someone who, you know, wherever I've been, I've always kind of competed, been near the top of the curling club, gone out and played the local bond spiel circuit. Sometimes I win, sometimes I don't. Right. And in Canada, there's like thousands of people at my level. Right. And that, that level is where you pull the next generation of superstars from. Right. And without, without that level, it's a bit like a sports team putting zero money into their farm system right? Eventually that's going to bite you, right? You can't always go out and buy free agents, right? Eventually you've, you've got to have some kind of development program to bring through not just necessarily star players, but also kind of your, your front end players kind of stuff. And so until you've got 
a system in place for that, it's really hard to see um, how you can sustain a lot of attendance at these big kind of events and actually sustain these big kind of events because you actually need a large pool of competitive curlers to, to keep that system in place. Are there any countries in Europe that are actually doing that and doing it well? Uh, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it, it's like, I mean, I wish there was, but I, I think that's the big problem. And it's, it was even, even in the world junior Bs, it was really striking, right? Like there are countries there that have, you know, several hundred thousand euros a year in funding. And they're, they're able to kind of hire a full-time national head coach or perhaps cover costs for their, the competitive teams. And then what they'll do is they'll select two or three junior teams that'll kind of get a lot of training, a lot of focus, and then kind of discard the rest. And then at the, the, the adult level, the same thing's going on. And then what happens to those people who don't quite make it, where do they go? A lot of them just simply lose interest, quit the sport, go do something else, right? And you're not building up the, the kind of your depth by doing that, right? And, and it's completely rational. Like if I was the head coach of a national curling program, and my mandate's to win medals in four years. I've obviously got to go pick out the top 12 to 16 performing athletes and then put all my time and resources into turning them into potential medalists. But the problem is that may be great for that head coach, but who then is looking for like kind of flushing out the next level down? And I just really don't see that happening kind of in any country in Europe at the moment. Seems like Switzerland's pretty deep. They have a lot of a lot of teams that go over to Canada, a lot of, you know, a lot of teams that look that are pretty high up on the order of merit. They seem like the deepest European country. Is that by accident or are they, you know, is there something that's helping develop a decent number of good curlers in Switzerland? Well, I think it's just size, right? Like I, I do think that you, you can basically track world standings based on number of ranks in that country. Right. So, uh, you know, the, the countries with the most number of curling weeks are the Canada, US, Switzerland, Sweden, Scotland. Right. So, and they're the kind of perennial curling power. So, th there is just, if you have curling weeks around, you're going to have curlers. Switzerland does have a fairly decent B tier kind of competitive circuit. Like, there's plenty of cash spiels there you can enter that aren't. That are, they may not even be linked up to the kind of the order of merit system, but they're kind of what I would call tier two or tier three cash spiel events. And so it's certainly possible if you live in Switzerland to kind of play a little local regional circuit, you don't have to take a ton of time off work. It's, it's there's, there's space for what I'd call that kind of competitive amateur player, the person who, who, you know, wants to go play on the weekend, but, you know, obviously isn't going to quit their job to go curling all the time and isn't funded. So yeah, there's a bit of that in Scotland. I think there's a little bit of that in Sweden too. Uh, there's a bit of that in Switzerland, but there's not a European-wide structure like that. And there, there has been some good movement, right? There's been new club, new ranks open in Belgium and, and Poland this year. So those are kind of, as soon as a country gets its first bit of dedicated ice, it's always a good sign. So, you know, maybe, maybe it will grow into something, but right now it's kind of stuck in this weird world where people are either fully funded able to jet around the world or, and then mostly playing in Canada or not really having any funding to play anywhere, not really having the events. Is there anywhere where they could take this event in future years that maybe would make a little bit of a splash or would help, um, advance curling in a, you know, in a country like Pol like Poland that, um, it's just starting 
you know, curling's just starting to to be up and coming. Well, I don't know how they would do it. Like, so what, I haven't been able to play yet in the Czech Republic, but um, heard good things about the Czech Republic. <laughs> so we we tried. We actually tried to get into a bond spiel in January, and actually got emailed back. Sorry, we're full. We already have thirty two people signed up. So there's no bond spiel in Scotland that I've seen yet that has a full field of thirty two. So whatever's going on in Scot in uh, the Czech Republic, there's a sign that something's going on that a cash spiel is attracting a full field which is nice. So maybe, maybe drop it in Prague, but put it in their curling club and, uh, you know, figure out a way to kind of put the event on there. I, I do think venue size matters too. Like there's, I, I understand there's like this desire to put events in kind of big venues and pack the house, but, you know, going back 20, 30 years when the skins game was on TSN, like the kind of early iteration of the skins game, it would always be in a curling club and they basically take a six sheet or an eight sheet or convert it into a venue for the week. And they'd only have one sheet in play because they'd only have one game going on at a time. And they just fill it with a couple hundred local fans and it actually created an intimate yet kind of exciting setting. You know, if you had just have a couple hundred people sitting in stands, sitting along a sheet, uh, clapping, that kind of creates a nice feel too. You don't have to have 5,000 people on stands kind of way up in the nosebleed section in order to make it feel like there's a big thing going on. So I think part of it's also perhaps being realistic about your staging options in terms of how big is the crowd going to be? Do you really need an arena in order to host this event? Or can you do it in say an eight sheet or somewhere and kind of modify that a bit? And the slams have done that very well. They're starting to go, go places and pack a 1000 seat venue instead of, trying to fill a, a 6,000 seat venue like you see for, you know, the, the Canada cup and the, the, a lot of the, the provincial tournaments, the curling world cup will be on television. A lot of those games will be live on Olympic channel on, if you're in the States, you'll be able to watch the TSN skins game, February 1st through 3rd. It will be streaming on ESPN three. Uh, and we are getting to the point where just about every weekend there's going to be a big curling tournament available to watch either online or television. So I wanted to have a Professor of Peel segment where you, Jonathan, could explain to people who are maybe new to this sport, who have you know only picked it up you know within the last 12 months since uh, the sport has kind of grown here in the U.S. Uh, coming off of the Olympics. So. This will be the first real season of champions that uh, that a lot of the newcomers are going to watch. So if you're a newcomer, if you're new to curling and you're watching these games on television, what should they watch for and what should they take away from from these games when they're watching? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I basically, I think there's three big things they should be watching. Uh, so one is the strategy. And so I'll talk a bit about that. And so my point is watch the strategy to learn strategy, but don't try to copy it. I'll expand on that in a second. Uh, the second, I think, is really look at the team communication, like how teams communicate with each other. Because I, I honestly think that one of the big gaps between club teams and pro teams is just communication systems. And the third thing is actually the sweeping. Because personally, I think that one area where a lot of club players don't put much effort 
but if they actually put in a bit of effort, they kind of could massively improve as a curler is into the sweeping and like all the sweeping you see on TV is always basically fantastic. So maybe we should just go through each of those points turn by turn. All right. So you want to start with strategy. Now there's, there's a huge difference between the players that we see on TV and us when we, when we go out and hit the ice for club games. If you're watching these games on TV and you're trying to think three or four shots ahead, what do you need to be watching? Well, okay. So watch the strategy. We don't copy it. So what I mean by that is you can't copy it. (laughs) You're playing at the club level. And so why is that? Like, so I'll, I'll stay, I'll start with kind of what I consider the basic pro style strategy. So if you're watching a slam or season of champion event, The basic strategy, assuming both teams are close in a game, is the team without hammer is going to throw up a center guard. Team with hammer is going to come around at top four. Team without hammer is going to come around and freeze on that. Then team with hammer is going to kind of come around and freeze on top of that. And so you're going to get this like stagger of stones in the four-foot area behind a center guard. There's going to be variations of that from time to time. But when you watch curling, the first four stones, a lot of the time, kind of go into that pattern. And all they're really jostling for those teams is angles and really precise angles. They're basically looking for a slight slip where a stone doesn't quite curl enough, where there's perhaps you're a little bit heavy and you bounce a stone and create a favorable angle. And then whoever kind of blinks first is going to try to either run the center guard back in or try to kind of, you know, pull some crazy double to try and set themselves up for a bunch. Right. So that's great to learn and kind of get a sense of how the angles work and see how teams play that. But honestly, uh, how often in a club would you see that happening? Like Maybe once a season. Yeah, exactly. Maybe <laughs> once a season, right? So that's not the best strategy to copy. That doesn't, I'm not saying don't put up a center guard. I'm not saying don't come around a center guard. But you're not going to be able to recreate that strategic situation. So watch it and learn from it a bit. But you're not going to get the, the kind of – you're not going to be able to kind of implement that strategy – kind of in club play. So I think there's other ways to think about how you watch curling strategy that you can still learn from. So especially if you're a brand new curler, I think one of the trickier concepts that beginners have to wrap their heads around is offensive style versus defensive style, right? So a lot of, for whatever reason, I, this is when I coach juniors, but also adults, a lot of people assume that takeout game is offensive because it's, I guess it's because it's like really violent and you're throwing things heavy and hard, right? But in fact, that's the defensive style, right? Because once you're starting to take stones out of play, you're limiting the scoring opportunity. So one question to ask yourself is, is this a defense-first team or an offense-first team? And kind of starting to learn what teams tend to be more aggressive and what teams tend to be more defensive, that'll kind of let you kind of begin to start appreciating some of the nuances of the game. And then maybe that'll make you kind of start to realize what do you prefer at the club level and are you more of an offense-first player or defense first player, right? So, and there's certainly a kind of players of both styles out there these days, but um, maybe kind of one thing to kind of look and watch is to see who who kind of plays that way and who's kind of more offense versus defense. Um, second thing is kind of how teams try to manage the scoreboard, right? So I think often the commentators, especially the TSN commentators, will draw your attention to that, right? Is Is there... Is there an attempt to blank an end going on here because a team wants to try to have hammer in the even ends? 
or are teams changing their strategy and becoming a bit more defensive when they're ahead or are they continuing to attack when they're ahead? So kind of start thinking about, is this team calling a game that's aggressive and still attacking or are they doing things like calling tick shots and kind of calling their first stone in the rings because they want to play more of a defensive style? And then like, the third thing is pay attention when there's a discussion going on, right? So if you see a team you know, stop their normal pace of play and kind of start talking a lot about a shot or calling a timeout, really listen to that conversation and like really listen to what kinds of reasons they give for deciding upon a shot. Are they talking about ice conditions, right? Sometimes you hear them say, oh, it's really frosty down this path. I'm not sure what's going on here. Are they talking about, you know, if they do that, what do they leave their opponent? Are they kind of thinking about what they're going to leave there? Or are they talking about kind of the risk of making, you know, the, the, the reward they get when they make the shot versus the risk of missing a shot? So what what kinds of decisions do they make? And then think about ways you can then apply that to decisions at the club level. So does ice conditions affect what shot you make, right? Especially if you're playing in arena clubs, the answer is going to be yes, right? There's, you know, if you're on a, a sheet that has a lot of a fall, that might affect what turn you can even play. Uh, are you worried about what you leave your opponent? I think that for a club player is a real moment where where they make a shift to being more of a strategic player. I think a lot of beginner curlers think only about can they make that shot. They don't necessarily think through if they make that shot, what does that leave their opponent? Then that's once once you start thinking that step through, that's where you're really starting to think a lot more strategically. Does it help to watch the the World Juniors because? those those teams will actually miss shots and kind of change up the strategy the way that uh the way that it could happen and for a club player yeah i'd say so um i would say that yeah juniors is a little bit closer to club play but still don't forget juniors are like um pretty good (laughs) at the world level still right like like ross white would come to your local club and destroy you no offense (laughs) i would bet a haggis on that oh definitely (laughs) so uh if they stay upright, did you happen to see their Instagram? Uh, did you happen to see the team white Instagram uh, no, this weekend? What were they doing? Were they drinking? <laughs> no, they had a post. <laughs> they had uh, after after one shot, not one, but two of their players tripped over rocks in like a ten second span. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> Was it they were sweeping or were they just being clumsy? They were just being clumsy. Like one. Uh, Including one, like the guy, the kid is walking, like walking backwards and doesn't see the rock and just goes right. And then he was the, that that was the second one that fell. But yeah, you had two, two team white players went down and went down hard in a 30 second span. So go find, go find the team white Instagram. They posted it. It was pretty good. And that was at the Scottish championship this weekend. So yeah. Anyway, (laughs) assuming they can stand up. They still destroy. I, I I mean, I honestly think I was just watching a bit of the Canadian juniors today. And uh, I mean, man, like even even the last five, six years, the strategic sophistication of like elite junior teams is kind of off the chart. Right? It's like uh, both the women's and the men's had like a ton of rocks in play, a lot of angles, very aggressive calling style. Um I, I think even at the elite junior level, it's going to be tough to emulate. Like the gap between elite juniors and kind of elite adult curlers is closing too, I'd say. But yeah, it's it's worth watching it a bit because there are misses still. Um, I do think that juniors tend to be a bit more kind of by the book, which is perhaps a good way to 
to kind of start off. Like it's, I think it's good as a first kind of thing to kind of learn the basic strategies by the book before you kind of get a lot more into the sophistication and nuance and some of the little tricks that you can pick up tactically over time. So yeah, there's a bit of an advantage to watch from that, but I, I still think that the average club curler, let, let alone a newbie curler is not going to be able to replicate the, the shooting ability of even an elite junior team. So you talked about, you talked about communication and how teams communicate with each other. What can be, what can be learned by watching these teams? And are there, are there any teams that maybe people should watch and not emulate them? So who are, who are you thinking of in terms of not emulating? Not as much this Kui team, but maybe previous Kui teams. All right. So yeah, so Kui's team talks a lot, right? I think, well, I, I guess that you can go too far. So A, at the, at the club level, one of the pitfalls I see some teams falling into is talking way too much. So call it Kevin Cooey syndrome. So yeah, they'll talk and talk and talk. And if they're on the clock, they'll only get six ends in per game, right? So you don't want to go so far down the path. Those, those teams are the yes, worst. they are the worst, right? Those teams are the <laughs> exactly. worst. So you don't want to be like that. But I do think there's a lot to learn from communication between teams, right? So I think... First thing is how they communicate rather than like what they're saying. So notice who gives input and how they give input, right? I was, I was watching, I was watching a bit of curling this afternoon. I think I saw some one team where someone's like, can I have a bit less ice please? Right. And this was like, I think it was like one of the top Manitoba women's teams. I think it was the Darcy Robertson team. And it, it was clear that like the second was just like, I would like a smidge less ice. Cause I think my stone is going to run a bit straighter there. And, and so they clearly communicated and agreed on it, but it was like, can I have a bit less ice, please? So it was a request rather than a demand. And the skip kind of acknowledged that they wanted the player to be comfortable throwing what they throw, right? Compare that to like, often I'll see this in club play where the player doesn't have confidence in what the skip's calling for ice and they'll either shake it off and kind of say something and the skip will get huffy and or the player will not do that but mutter to themselves and then miss because they're not confident in throwing right so i think the big gap between one of the big gaps aside from shot making obviously between like a club team and a competitive team is that a lot of competitive teams have sat down and talked through when and how they communicate uh disagreements whether it's about how much ice they give how much weight they're going to play on a shot and they also discuss how they're going to communicate that. But you'll notice a lot of the teams that are drilled say it in a very positive light. Like, can I have a bit less ice, please, as opposed to that broom's wrong or you're an idiot for icing me that way, right? which I see a lot more often at club level. So that's part of it. I think the other thing is like how the teams are run. I would say that most elite teams operate on what I'd call a democratic decision-making structure, right? So if you're one of the reasons kind of team Cooey probably talked a lot is because Kevin Cooey had Mark Kennedy who was probably the best shooter on the planet and knew a lot of stuff about curling. And he had Brett Lang who was easily the best second on the planet and the men's side at least. And he's kind of like also knows the game really well. So they both played with like Kevin Martin and, and uh, Glenn Howard. So they've kind of taken a lot from those guys. So Kevin clearly wanted input from experienced players and he was, he's the kind of person who can listen to a whole bunch of things, process it and come up with a decision. Right. So there's a, there's a case for doing that as a team, but also again, how you do it 
kind of matters, right? That especially at the club level, your skip may not be as confident as Kevin Cooey, right? And so your skip may not feel super comfortable if you're arguing with him or her on every single shot. That might undermine their confidence. But looking at how teams do that and then maybe having a discussion off ice with your team about how you want to communicate strategic decisions, how you want to communicate icing decisions, kind of all of that matters, right? I think the other thing is that's different is most of the players on those teams are super specific about how they communicate to the player right before they throw. So, you know, probably the one that kind of got mocked a few years ago was Chelsea Carey and Jocelyn Peterman, where she was like Elaney Peters were like, oh, yeah. just trust it, Chelsea, whatever. Right. <laughs> so you got you it. Got it. Just trust it. Whatever it is. Right. Um, and, I, I was maybe actually an outlier, right? Maybe that sounds annoying, et cetera. But obviously, Chelsea had spoken to the team about the information she needed to hear right before she's about to throw, right? And having skipped a lot at the club level and had a lot of different players with a lot of different attitudes, the the thing I hate <laughs> the most in the world is a skip is I'm halfway through my my press, just about to kick out of the hack, and then one of the players says, well, don't dump it wide, you idiot, right? <laughs> it's like, well, now you've planted the most negative possible image in my head, right? Or I've come down, I've discussed the decision with the third, I've decided the shot, and then a player on the front end is like, well, that's a really dumb call. Why don't you call this instead, right? And you're arguing with the second about your strategic call, right? So you, you never see pro teams do that, like virtually never, right? Most of the time it'll be, from the front end players, it'll be really positive communication about uh, the execution of the shot. Sometimes some players obviously don't want anything to say anything, or it's very specific communication about the, the sliding path. That the front end players have read whatever the path is that Stone's going down. They can tell you, oh, it's two feet less, or it's slowed down, or it's a bit faster out there. They can give you the kind of information you need to execute the shot, right? Club players all the time are saying things, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to undercut their player, right? And so I think one of the things to take away from watching curling on TV is watching how that team functions as a unit. Like one of the things that's unique about curling as a TV sport is everyone's mic'd up so you can hear what they're saying to each other all the time. And it's really, really rare at the elite level to hear one member of the team badmouth another player on the team or kind of say something that might be negative. And I would say having curled in clubs a lot uh, for many years, it's actually really common to have kind of club players slam their broom when a player misses or say something snarky or provide negative information when you actually need positive feedback, right? So perhaps watching what the players say and then thinking about how you can adjust what you say to your teammates in the course of a game could be kind of a key thing to take away. All right. So what would you say other than just pure skill level? I mean, general skill level, what's going to be the biggest difference between what these teams that we see on TV do and what a club curler um, does well? I honestly think that sweeping is something that the club level curlers can pick up quickly, that it's it's not as difficult to be a good to great sweeper as it is to be a good to great shot maker. And especially if you're starting off at the club level, you're likely to be starting off playing front end. And if you're playing front end, that means you're throwing two stones, but you're sleeping for six stones each end, right? So 
I think you can learn a lot by watching how the sweepers kind of sweep on TV, right? And sweeping's really three things. So it's the technique, but it's also judgment and communication. And so I think one of the things to watch is how often the sweepers on a curling team communicate the weight and, and kind of yell back and forth and really pay attention to what they yell how they communicate things, how often they kind of have a communication interaction, right? I, I guarantee if you start paying attention to that, you'll notice that all elite sweepers are kind of calling out the weight three, four, five times on each shot, right? From my line, it's like go to mid ice, to hog line all the way right down. I think maybe the other thing to pay attention to is how they work together. Like normally the sweeper closer to the stone is kind of heads down and doing the grunt work while as the, whereas the front sweeper is doing most of the yelling and judging, um, I think you can actually learn a lot from the, the technique too. Like I, maybe at a, in a later segment, we can talk about some of the more kind of advanced sweeping techniques, especially kind of post broom gate, a lot of, a lot of nuances have kind of crept into the sweeping that I think th- that actually, to be honest, club curlers could pick up, uh, just as well as competitive curlers. It's actually not that hard, but pay attention to like what angles they sweep at, how often they sweep North South versus side to side, who's sweeping on which side, uh, pay attention to their footwork. Cause I think there's, you know, again, uh, you see very few crossover steps with elite curlers, but a lot of club curlers, their basic sweeping technique is kind of foot over foot, which isn't that efficient. For safety, we try to teach them to never do that. <laughs> it's a crossover step. Yeah. Yeah. So do you normally start with like open stance, feet facing down the ice kind of thing or. Yep. We try to get them to basically walk next to the rock. Yeah, and that's that's a that's a good basic kind of technique. But I think after you've been on the ice for a while, like close stance and kind of the shuffle step and some of the the other kind of non crossover footwork, you can pick up pretty easily too. Um, but like this, like really watching and appreciating that, and I think that you know. Basically, in every sport, there's a certain set of skills that kind of real fans of that sport appreciate, whereas the casual fan maybe doesn't, right? So maybe, you know, in football, assume you, you assume, well, you geek out the punting, which is just downright weird. But, you know, like maybe the, I would say that maybe someone that kind of is paying attention to what the, the old lineman or the left tackle does, right? There's like a player who's got like no glamour, but if he's not doing his job well, your quarterback's going nowhere. Or in basketball, you know, the center who can kind of gobble up the rebounds and do the outlet pass and set the hard screen. Like that, those are all skills that obviously aren't going to get you on the cover of Sports Illustrated. But, you know, every championship team needs knows they need someone doing that, right? Um, uh, so sweepings, that's what that is in curling, right? So Ben, ben Hebert, to be kind of completely honest, is only on elite curling teams because he's a beast, quite frankly, like a great sweeper, great technique, super strong. Right. And I'd say the same for Joanne Courtney on the women's side, right. She's there because she is an extremely strong sweeper. There's, uh, you know, there's, they're, they're good shot makers, but not great shot makers, but championship teams need, know they need an elite sweeper in this day and age. And so I'd say that that translates also to the club level. That if you can get a reputation as being a good front end player and a good sweeper and learning the art of that kind of thing, you'll never be without a team. That that uh, club teams and competitive teams, when they're forming, 
the hardest slots to fill are front end players because there's a lot of people who aren't really willing to play front end and finding someone who's kind of willing to do the grunt work and do it well is often hard to locate. So if you're a new curler and looking for a way to establish yourself rather than trying to become the next skip, uh, maybe try to become, you know, the next great second. Who are your favorite teams to watch? Who are, right now, I really like Botcher. I, I mean, I, I honestly think that the Botcher team is ready. I mean, they're already kind of breaking through, but but I, we're not kind of getting ready for Briar predictions yet. But I, I, I think Botcher has got a serious shot at winning the Briar this year. I think as a team, they're just kind of perfectly constructed, right? They're just, you know, Brendan Botcher is a great skip. I just love what uh, the wild man does at third. And their front end has got both the tech, the, the sweeping technique of the front end is just fantastic. They're basically constructed the same way that Kevin Martin's kind of like 2008 to 2013 team with Johnny Moe and, and everyone else is. So I think they're the, they're kind of my favorite and they, they just do everything well. So I think they're, they're kind of ready to kind of punch through and become, you know, a top, top team in the world within the next couple of years. They're a team that you can watch and take away a lot of their communication because I think they do it well. Yeah, they do it really well. I think I, I to me, I'm like Brendan Botcher, super level headed, really clear communicator. Daryl Darren Molding, I just love him. He's like the perfect third. He's just like like he's he's actually like you can tell he's like in love with Botcher. He's just totally in awe of him, right? And that's that's who you need as a third. You need a third who just kind of you're skipping. You need the third to absolutely believe all the time you're going to do like everything kind of thing. And so their team dynamic is great, uh, and they do all the little things really well. So uh, like you know it's just a little bit more seasoning, but they're going to be punching through really quickly. Uh, I actually like watching Chelsea carry on the women's side. I know that kind of puts me as an outlier. I guess she's, she's kind of got a lot of haters out there, but, uh, I think she's passionate. I actually really liked the iteration of her team when she had Kathy O again, like Kathy O was like a fantastic third. And I'm, I'm, I think half the reason they made that deep run of the, the roar of the rings last year was just, she was kind of the ice to Chelsea's fire and it kind of worked really well. You know, I don't have a problem with like a fiery player and she's, she's a fiery player. So I think they're a fun team to watch on the women's side. If people want to watch some teams that are really offensive and like a lot of rocks in play, who, who would you watch if you, if you want to see some high scoring games? Well, I, th- I think Moet is kind of calls a really aggressive game. So I, I kind of really like that. He's just kind of fearless all out on the attack. And I think Cooey is, to my mind, even though probably Cooey's a little bit past his peak, he's still obviously like, you know, top of the money list. But uh, like he, him, I would say him and Gushu are the best at kind of setting up crazy angles, right? And just like, there's, there's times I watch Cooey Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, what, what's he doing? And then three shots later, it kind of turns into a crazy shot that I can't even describe. Like he, he's the, he's basically what the Howard brothers were in their prime in terms of calling an offensive game, recognizing lots of angles, playing a really aggressive style. I'd say Kevin Cooley's kind of mastered that skill set for this generation. And I think, I think Gushu's probably perhaps not quite as offensive as Cooey, but he's really good at kind of the, 
the rock positioning game. Like I, I think like when I was at the Worlds last year, and he he fell down pretty early to a Dean early, and the game was actually even though it was kind of over after about the third end, it it was still like an interesting game to watch because Gushu then basically had to get his rock positioning perfectly, and they did that end after end. Then end after end, I'd be like, is that double there? And sure enough, a Dean would kind of pull off a miracle double out of his out of whatever his pocket back pocket. And it was kind of, to me, it was a classic game of great offensive rock positioning versus spectacular defensive shot making. So I'd say Adin's probably taken over the Kevin Martin style, like the kind of classic big weight hitting game, blow it up and throw the big run backs. And I'd say Cooey is still the, the big offensive kind of game caller. All right. So lots of curling on TV to, follow all of those tips from Jonathan and get some curling knowledge off of watching these elite teams play, uh, coming up just this, just this weekend, as we said, uh, TSN skins game on ESPN three here in the States, the curling world cup, uh, live from Yonko Ping, Sweden will be on, will be on Olympic channel and NBC sports. And then also, uh, you'll be able to go on titlesportslive.ca and for free be able to see the Ottawa, uh, or I'm sorry, you'll be able to go to titlesportslive.ca this weekend and see the Ontario playdowns for both the men and the women as they determine their Scotties and Briar representatives. And that will include team Rachel Homan trying to get back to the Scotties. And even if, although even if they lose that tournament, they are guaranteed a wild card spot. So pretty much every weekend you've got something. So if the Super Bowl goes sideways, there's plenty of curling to watch on February 3rd as well. Um, Thank you to everyone who bothered to listen to this podcast. We appreciate you guys. Um, Please remember to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever it was that you found us. Uh, The best compliment that you can give us is to tell one of your friends about the podcast if you liked it. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us or you have a topic for a Professor of Peel segment, you can get a hold of us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. You can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can also message us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us at rocksacrossthepond there. So thank you as always, and we will talk to you again soon.